an inconvenient truth. That title might seem to be a little bit controversial, I suppose, or it could even seem to be a little bit heretical, depending on how aggressive you want to be. Um, But to begin with, obviously it's all going to make sense. So to begin with, let's just have a look at what the definition of inconvenient actually means. So inconvenient means causing trouble, difficulties or discomfort. So my question is, Jesus, is Jesus an inconvenient truth? Well, even now after that definition, you might have some problems with what I'm saying. But let's think about it and ask some questions. Firstly, did Jesus ever cause trouble? Has following him ever caused trouble for anyone? Has following him ever caused trouble for you? Has following him ever been difficult? Or has following him ever been uncomfortable? At the end of the day, Jesus is not an inconvenient truth. Obviously, he's probably the most, well, he is the most convenient thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. But now, as we live our day-to-day lives, because we often live our lives um, kind of half in the world and half of the world, half in love with God and half in love with our possessions, because we half trust God and half of us, the other half of us trusts science or earthly wisdom or knowledge, then sometimes Jesus actually really can appear to be, at times, an inconvenient truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. Now you can hear quite clearly there that there's three distinct elements in that. There's the way, there's the truth and the life. And I don't think that you can really necessarily say that any one of them is any more important than any other. The three kind of, they work, they work together and they're connected with each other. They're interne- interconnected inherently, really. Um, but I think that you could suggest, possibly, that, oh, I said the lie. That's shocking. <laughs> That's exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. That is the greatest typo ever. Obviously, Jesus is not the lie. <laughs> People are smiling and like, what's going on? Something's, something's up there. Well, that's it. You're paying. I never knew if people looked at the PowerPoints, and now I know. So there you go. Uh, actually, I'm the head of English out here at uh, TCC, so <laughs> send your kids here. Great education coming their way. As I was saying, I don't think that you can necessarily say that any one of them is more important, but chronologically, I think that you could suggest that there is a process there that happens. And that's what I'm going to je- suggest this morning, that there is a little bit of a chronological order there. So the question that I want to kind of ask to start this off with, and it's a very big controversial question, is how are we saved? Now that is a huge question because for 500 years, ever since the Reformation, people have been arguing about that, and even really before that. That's a, that's a big question. It's kind of the question of Christianity, how are we saved? The interesting thing about that question is that even though there has been a lot of discussion about it, there are plenty of verses in the Bible that talk and seem to suggest, particularly in the New Testament, very clearly that we are saved uh, through faith. Okay, by grace, through faith. So, the question there is, uh, what is faith? Well, we've said here at the project before that faith is an active trust. That's what the Greek word for faith actually means. It's an active trust. Now, here's the question. Is it possible 
to have an active trust in something that you don't believe is true? Is it possible to actively trust something that you think is false? I don't think it is. I think that seems to defy logic to me, that a person could place active trust in something that they know is a lie. And this is actually one of the one of the really big defences for the legitimacy of the New Testament. You think about the New Testament, what we've got here is um, the whole Christian faith is based upon the fact that Jesus not just died, but that he rose again. The fact that he rose again is the really important part. And if the 12 disciples decided that they wanted to make up a religion, which a lot of people, a lot of, you know, people that are opposed to Christianity would say that they did, it was just made up. If they wanted to, they could have decided to say, let's all just say that he rose again. Let's make that up so that we can start a religion. But the truth is that historically, it certainly seems as though 11 of the 12 disciples were actually killed because of saying that. So the question is, do you think that a person would be tortured, would be eventually killed and put through great suffering all because of something that they made up themselves. You'd think at least one of them would kind of crack and say, no, we made it up, don't kill me. You see what I mean? And that's actually a really good apologetic for the the truth of the Bible. If they made it up, it's hard to believe that they would die for those lies that they made up. So my point there is um, that people do not have faith in something that they know is not the truth. Now that... What I didn't say there is, it's, that's different to doubt. I didn't say that people do not have faith in something that they doubt. Doubt sometimes is quite normal. And in fact, particularly when our understanding of reality is kind of clouded or changed by different circumstances in our lives, it can be normal to doubt sometimes. But doubt is different to knowing that something is not the truth. Does that make sense? When you doubt something, you're questioning. But I'm talking about knowing 100% that it is not the truth that it is a lie. So, back to my question. Is it possible to have an active trust in something that you know is a lie? I don't don't think it is. I don't think it's possible to do that. Christians believe in the truth of Christ. They believe that he really lived and that he really died, that he really rose again. They believe he is the Son of God and part of the Holy Trinity of God, that he is fully God and fully man. These are truth statements. You can't actually believe that any of that, any one of those individual elements is completely false and still have a faith in Jesus. Because the reason is, if you believe some of that and not all of that, you're actually believing in something else. You're believing in something other than Jesus. As an example, because I know that might sound a bit confusing, you can think of Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? You might know that they come and knock on your door and you might know that there's something weird you know, uh, are we Christians? Because a lot of the time they'll say that we're, we're both Christians. Um, but they believe some of those things that I said, but not all of them. They don't actually believe that Jesus is God as part of the Trinity. They believe that he was created. He was a created being. And in fact, they believe that he was the Archangel Michael until the point where he needed to be sent down and then he became Jesus. So you can see that's a very distinct difference. And if Jehovah's Witnesses say, we believe in Jesus, the same Jesus as you... Well, you can see that they don't. They actually believe in something different. They have faith in something else, a different idea. The point to realise there is that the truth of Christ is really important. In fact, it's so important that it defines what and who we believe in. 
In that sense, it would often seem to come, that's kind of why I'm saying it seems to come first in the equation of the way, the truth and the life. It's definitely possible that that's not always the case, but I could cash it out like this to try to explain further. If you just take the truth part, you've got the way, the truth and the life. If you just take the truth part and believe that he is the truth, you will automatically end up believing he is the way and the life as well. Can you see that? Because you'll believe him. That is, you'll believe that he tells the truth and that he is the truth. Therefore, you'll believe what he says about being the way and the life. The truth really matters. Believing in the truth is a belief. It's a mental state. It's a statement of faith and relationship with Jesus. Believing the truth is an active but not necessarily physical activity. But believing in the truth will result in two physical actions or two physical activities. Believing that Jesus is the truth will affect your life. Jesus is the life. And will affect your way. Jesus is the way. The way there being that no one comes to the Father except through me. See, the truth of Jesus changes people. It changes your life and it creates the way. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. They're all interconnected. The way element is about salvation and redemption. It means that Jesus has made the way when we follow his truth, when we follow that way and we will come to the Father through him. But the life element is the part that affects us here and now in our everyday life. So my point is this, believing that Jesus is the truth, believing that the Bible is the truth, means that you follow it and it affects your life. Now, I should probably put a little aside here. What's required is more than belief. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe and shudder. So it's not just belief, but you can see that belief is a big part of it. You need to believe first before you can have active trust. Belief is not the linchpin. The linchpin is the active trust, but you need to believe. In fact, I would even say that if you believe in Jesus and you don't have active trust in Jesus, your understanding of Jesus is very limited. You only have a partial understanding because the more we know about Jesus, the more we want to put our active trust in him because he's so amazing. Now, it's possible uh, that I haven't necessarily said all that much at the moment that's new or revelatory. It might seem kind of standard, but I want to read a quote from one of my favourite books of all time, Mere Christianity by, of course, C.S. Lewis. And here it is. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. I love that quote. And this is where we branch back into the concept of inconvenience. See, because one of the most difficult things about Christianity and kind of about the truth in general is that it can be a real inconvenience sometimes. Haven't you ever had a situation in your life where you just wished that this thing wasn't the truth, that you you could kind of make up your own system that would benefit you a lot better at this particular time? Not only is truth inconvenient, but as Lewis kind of refers to there, it also makes you very uncomfortable. Now, there's a couple of different ways to define uncomfortable. I mean, first of all, you could say, in one sense, it's the opposite of being comfortable, like sleeping in a sleepy bed or sitting through an hour and a half sermon on a hot day in the chairs that we used to have. You know, the chairs that we got now, 
will hopefully make it a lot more comfortable for you, but they used to be shocking. The other side, though, of, of comfort or this idea of being uncomfortable is not getting comfort when you're looking for it. That's a little bit different to being uncomfortable, like physically uncomfortable, but you're looking for some comfort and then you don't get it, and that is uncomfortable. That sense of having no comfort is like you're looking for something to make you feel good or something to make you feel better and you're not able to find it. And hopefully you can see the difference between those two because this is where we run into one of the problems with churches in general and with Christianity. Because one of the catch cries of modernity with regards to Christianity is that God is love. I'm sure that you've heard that before. And maybe you've seen the bumper stickers, although I don't see them much anymore, that, you know, Jesus loves you. And that's true. God is love and Jesus does love us. And what does love do? Well, one of the things that we expect from the people that love us is that they comfort us. That's an expectation. Love is connected to comfort. And churches can kind of run into trouble a little bit here when they focus primarily on this idea of comfort or even exclusively. When churches place the comfort of their members above the truth, things start to get a little bit weird. That's when we start to see teaching that's really focused in one particular area, like prosperity, an obsession with prosperity, or an obsession with sexual freedom. These sort of things should be discussed, but they shouldn't be the main topic that we're talking about. It shouldn't overrule every conversation that we have. That should be the truth of the gospel. There's a cartoon I saw this morning. You might think it's, hopefully you don't think it's too offensive, but it says, I've been looking for a church like yours. I'm heavily into sin and have absolutely no desire to change. It kind of illustrates the point a little bit, you know. If we're just interested in making people feel good and comfortable and not challenge people, then really what we're doing is we're not talking about the truth anymore. So my main point is this. Love and comfort only go together when you love truth more than comfort. Like I said before, when we believe the truth, we live the life, we receive the way. We need first to really believe the truth. And it's possible that there's elements of Christianity that you don't really believe. I think that would be the same for everyone. I think everyone's got these little idolatries and little things that we don't quite, we're not quite willing to let go of and really believe all of what Christ has for us. And that's why we should love truth because the truth will set you free. Can you see how if all you're interested in is is love and comfort, the truth can be really annoying? If I want to feel comfortable, I'm just going to eat burgers all day because it's easy and tasty. If I want love, I won't care where I get it from. But the truth is, if I eat burgers all the time, I'll become unhealthy. And that's a really annoying truth. The truth is that if I don't care where I get love from, I'll look for it in the wrong places, places that could be dangerous and harmful for my marriage. And that's an annoying truth. The truth is, there's no excuse to speed, or at least most of the time. But that's a very annoying truth when we're late for an appointment because our kids are sick. The truth is, we need to forgive people. But that's an uncomfortable and inconvenient truth when you've really been hurt by someone. That's why sometimes, hopefully not all the time, but sometimes... It's good for you to leave church feeling uncomfortable. You see what I mean? If we only look for comfort and love, that is, if we want Jesus to be the way that we want him, if our understanding of Jesus is that he makes us 
feel good and that's it, then we aren't really getting to the truth of Jesus. Because Jesus clearly is not just about making people feel good. His aim is not just your comfort. His aim is your salvation, your sanctification, and ultimately your complete comfort, your complete fulfillment. But that is an ultimate goal. That's the word to remember there, ultimate. That's not a day-to-day, second-by-second goal. If we live our life looking for second-by-second constant fulfillment, that's actually called hedonism, where we just are obsessed with our own pleasure all of the time. Now, it is possible to be completely, constantly, daily filled by Christ, but if we're the ones chasing after it, we tend to look towards hedonistic pleasures. That's what Lewis is getting at in the quote. If you look for comfort, you will only find only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. And you can see this sometimes, when you can see people going off on a certain path, choosing small little joys, small little trifles that lead to a path of happiness, happiness, a little bit less happiness, and all of a sudden they wake up 20 years later, despair. Soft soap, wishful thinking, because we look for comfort. Because Jesus is interested in our ultimate fulfilment, he gives us himself. He is what fulfills us. The issue is that we often, we don't believe him. And so sometimes we actually need to be uncomfortable for a while so that we look to him and we can find real fulfillment rather than fleeting momentary distraction. Two weeks ago when Sonny was in the middle of the um, shame series, he started off with that quote about, it was a C.S. Lewis quote again, about God making us into a mansion and having to break down walls in order to do it. That's uncomfortable. If you've had any metaphorical walls broken down in your life, you know that that's uncomfortable. So, what do we do when the truth is uncomfortable? Well, there's four possible paths that people seem to take. Firstly, we ignore it. Now, how on earth can we ignore something as obvious as the truth? Well, it's pretty easy. People do it all the time. I'm sure all of us do it all the time. It's as easy and simple as saying it's none of your business when someone tries to offer you a little bit of help. It's as easy as pretending that an issue will just go away if you ignore it for long enough. Secondly, we try to change it. And this actually involves us actually hearing the truth and then manipulating it afterwards. And this is usually done at a subconscious level as well. An example of this could be taking something like God's design for marriage and sexuality and changing it so that it suits us, so that in in our own individual situation, so that an unmarried couple can say things like, we're married in God's eyes. Or people can say, pornography doesn't hurt anyone. Or, you know, the unmarried couple, what we're doing isn't technically prohibited in the Bible. You know, trying to find loopholes, trying to find ways around stuff. You know, there's, there's plenty of things not technically prohibited in the Bible if you really want to try to be semantic about it. But when we try to manipulate the truth to suit us, what it means is we're not actually believing the truth at all. And the truth will set you free. But we try to set ourselves free by making up lies and believing them. Thirdly, we flat out deny it. And this involves a lot more choice and effort on our behalf. We actually say... That's not the truth. (laughs) 
someone comes at us with the truth and we say that is not the truth. And this is what's happened with the homosexual church movement. Right now, all over the world, there are churches, well, all over Australia at least, Sunday morning, there are Bible-believing Christian churches, Christians that go to churches that preach that the Bible does not prohibit homosexuality, and even that it does not prohibit sex before marriage at all. They just completely deny that truth because it's more comfortable, a lot more comfortable, particularly if you're faced with that situation. And of course, the fourth is the hard one. We just accept the truth. Now, why does this matter so much? The reason that this matters is because Jesus promises us life. He promises us life. That's exciting. That's really exciting. He promises life. In John 10, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He also says that he is the truth. And this means that if we follow the truth, we get the life. The flip side is when we ignore, change or deny the truth, we don't get the life. And this is what happens in every one of those examples. When we try to ignore or change or deny the truth, the life that we experience is not the life that Jesus offers because we're no longer finding our fulfilment in him. In fact, most of the time, uh, when we ignore, deny and change the truth, it's actually to make up for the fact that we're finding our fulfilment in something else. So we have to change the truth in order to fit the world that we've created, the ideas that we're living by. And when we don't live according to the truth, our lives do not bear the fruit of truth. Our lives will always bear the fruit of the way that we live. Now, that doesn't mean that if you do the right thing, good things happen to you. This isn't karma. That's not the way that it works. Okay? But if we believe lies or if we ignore the truth, the natural consequence of sin is death. Not just physical death, but emotional death, particularly in this, the death of relationships. People question why certain things have happened to them when sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes they're self-inflicted because they've looked for comfort instead of looking for truth. And this is the strangeness of humanity. We actually try to avoid the truth thinking that avoiding it will bring us happiness in life. But in doing so, we actually bring harm to ourselves. Why don't we take Jesus at his word? Why do we ignore his truth? And then we get upset when our lives get messed up. Remember, the truth will set you free. That's got to be one of the greatest things that's in the Bible. Are you living trapped? Believe the truth. (laughs) Do you know people that are living lives that are trapped, captive to something, held by some, some lie? They need the truth. The truth will set them free. But we don't. We so often don't. We so often fight the truth, we hide from it, we change it, we ignore it, or we deny it. Like Eve, we would prefer to believe a lie. There's a great example of this in, once again, C.S. Lewis's, uh, The Magician's Nephew. The book tells the story of the creation of Narnia and Aslan singing the world into existence. Uncle Andrew is one of the characters that's there present for this, but he can't hear the singing. He just hears roaring. And instead of obviously enjoying it, he is terrified and he's irritated by the whole thing. Later in the text, Aslan tries to explain to Polly, one of the other characters, what Uncle Andrew's problem is. This is what it says. He thinks great folly, child, said Aslan. 
This world is bursting with life for these few days because the song with which I called it into life still hangs in the air and rumbles in the ground. It will not be so for long, but I cannot tell that to this old sinner and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. O Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. Love those last words. We do that. We construct elaborate things in order to be able to believe the lies of the world. We fight against all the things that could do us good. People, how cleverly we defend ourselves against all that might do us good. Notice also that Aslan says that he can't comfort him because he can't hear his voice. When we look for comfort, we find nothing. When we look for truth, we find it and we often find comfort as well. This is why the project we talk about the concept of speaking the truth to each other, speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that's the tension. We speak the truth in love. We all need to. We need to speak the truth in love. We certainly can't lie to each other for the sake of trying to comfort. But love without truth is not love. And truth without love is not love. It must be both, especially if it's uncomfortable. If it's uncomfortable, usually the discomfort means that it's really important. So will you follow the truth? Will truth be the focus of your journey with God? Or is it comfort? Will you lay down your desires, your wants, even what you consider to be your needs to follow where truth leads? Will you follow the truth no matter where it leads, even if it gets uncomfortable? Will you accept the truth when it disagrees with everything that you feel? If not, it can be said of us how cleverly we defend ourselves against all that might do us good. Because the truth is a person. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The way to the Father is through Him. The best life for us, both now and in eternity, is in Him. And both are found by believing and by placing active trust and following his truth, especially when it's inconvenient. Jesus is not an inconvenient truth. He's the most convenient thing to ever happen. But all too often, we want to be lied to and we want to see the world falsely. If there are elements of Jesus' truth that are inconvenient or uncomfortable for you, you should look into it and discover why. great quote to finish up with by theologian Henry de Lubac. He said, it's not a question of adapting Christianity to men, but of adapting men to Christ. It's not about ignoring, changing or denying the truth. It's about us being changed by the truth.
Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you came as the way, the truth, and the life. And I just pray that you would guard all of us against believing lies, against making assumptions about the world, about the way that the world is, and accepting blindly the wisdom of the world when we know that it is foolishness to you. And that we would instead be shaped by you, shaped by your truth, and that that truth would set us all free. Amen.